0: Kotaku's not dead, and NCAA football's not back. Adventures in re-reporting. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And yesterday, all across my social media and looking at articles about video games and entertainment and sports, and this video actually is a kind of cross-section between all of those things, two major stories kept hitting my timeline. And I want to talk to you about them because, essentially, both stories were, at least in significant part, wrong. And so the nature of social media, the nature of 2019 reporting is such that things get re-reported that are wrong, that people are excited about, and in that excitement they transmit through Reset Era or Reddit or Tumblr or wherever you might find yourself on the Internet and it has this kind of echo chamber effect. And I wanna talk about that because like all episodes of Virtual Legality, it is my hope that we always look at the source material because that's where we get the best information. There is very, very useful reporting. There is very useful editorializing on these issues. I highly recommend reading those as well but if you can get to the lowest possible level of these stories so that you can understand what's happening. And so there were a couple Twitter threads that I made yesterday that both started with read the source material that I wanna talk to you about. And this first one is about the issue of Kotaku. So about yesterday afternoon here on the East Coast, I started to get a number of tweets and a number of references to the fact that Kotaku is dead and everybody at Kotaku has been fired, which I'm a corporate lawyer. I look at these things and say, that doesn't sound right. That's not how these things usually happen. So I go and I try to dive into where the main story is. And I've come up with this one from GameSpace. And it's not entirely clear that this is kind of patient zero for this story because this language that was in this article was copied and pasted over into a number of other places, kind of quick action blog media in the video game industry. Uh, Not generally the sites that you think of as kind of the big sites, the IGNs and the GameSpots of the world, but the little sites that are trying to uh, get clicks and get ad revenue and what have you. And this article was labeled, Kotaku staff fired after complaining of atrocious ads. It appears that most of the working staff at Gaming Megasite Kotaku have been fired. And I said, wow, okay, let's take a look at this. And I I went through and I looked at this article and we're going to click on it right now. This is not what happened yesterday. But if we look at what this is uh, today, we see that if you click through on that article, uh uh-oh, page not found. So as I said in my tweet, none of this is accurate in this article. Seems like they ultimately agreed Uh, that none of this was accurate. By the time I woke up this morning to do this video, this was taken down. But to some extent, the damage had already been done. So I wanted to find some places where this language was copied. And I found this site called Stevavor, maybe. Uh, And he has an article here that says, Kotaku staff reprimanded after highlighting atrocious ads, which is give or take what appears to have happened on Twitter. I'm not very comfortable saying just based on tweets that this is exactly what happened, period. But what this actually contains is the language that was in the original article from GameSpace, or perhaps this was the original article, but you see how things became uh, mistake-prone. And it says several staff members at Kotaku's U.S.-based offices, and this is struck out, have reportedly been fired and replaced with been reprimanded today. And that was always pretty clear as to what was happening. A lot of the Kotaku authors, a lot of the Kotaku journalists, the editor, went out on Twitter yesterday and basically said, wow, this is a bad day. And to give context to that, we're going to talk about it. But the ownership, the private equity ownership group that now owns the Gizmodo Group, which I believe goes by the name G slash O at this point in time, has been having issues with its editorial staff, with its journalists at its various sites, which include Kotaku and most notably for this story, Deadspin. And they've been having these issues because they've been trying to change their marketing approach on these sites. And one of these things was, I believe, kind of uh, play videos, autoplay videos that were on the sites and that people that visited Kotaku and Deadspin and probably some other Geo sites were complaining about. And so ultimately what these editorial staffs did at these sites was to create a post, I believe that it had the same language throughout, that said, hey, don't complain to us, complain to our ownership, we don't like them either. Uh, And their union, the GMG union, actually copied and pasted this particular post uh, because it wound up getting removed uh, by the ownership of these sites. It says, "Uh, we've received a great deal of feedback from you about the sound on autoplay videos that have been inundating our sites. We want you to know that we hear you and that we take these complaints seriously and that we uh, are as upset about the current state of the site's user experience as you you are but we don't control the ad experience and we recommend that you check it out with geo media to talk to it about uh, to talk about it with them and ultimately at the end of this whole thing uh geo winds up pulling all these posts down which uh, some of the GMG union folks, some of the editors at various sites highlighted was a violation of their collectively bargained agreement, where it said essentially editorial control was to be in the hands of the editorial staff, that ownership can own the company, they can fire people, they can you know, set the direction of the thing. But that when you're actually talking about the content of a post, the ownership group can't just go in and change things because that's kind of the firewall that they have set up and that's what was agreed to in their contract. Uh, which makes a certain amount of sense. It makes sense really from both directions, right? I'm a corporate lawyer, so I look at this and I say, okay, so ownership can set the direction of the site, but they can't tell you exactly what to write, but they can make changes if you write something they don't like. And so what is all happening here? And at the end of this segment, we're going to look at some tweets from a journalist Twitter friend of mine, Mike Futter, who writes for Game Daily Biz and some other places, previously Variety Gaming, uh, and who I often give quotes to on legal issues about the video game industry and business and law. Uh, And he has some thoughts about how this should work and how it didn't work here. Uh, But I think ultimately what we've got is a situation where ownership has stepped in and removed posts that they probably shouldn't have on the direct language of their contract. And you have a lot of journalists at a lot of these sites that are very upset about it. And then Kotaku had all these tweets. You have Steven Totillo saying, another tough day at the office. I've steered Kotaku through some rough waters before, thanks to my amazing team. Can I do it again? We'll see. Heather Alexandra, a journalist over there, a lot of trolls are acting like Kotaku's gone, but we're not, et cetera, etc. Et and for whatever reason, this got reported as everybody's been fired, presumably for clicks or what have you. But at the end of the day, that's not what happened. And so I always caution this for people, but if you look at this actual article and if you imagine that every time they say reprimand, they say the people were fired and then they use these tweets as proof, which is just these Kotaku folks complaining on Twitter, which I think is perfectly justified if they feel that they were put upon or if they did get reprimanded or if Gio has been having difficulty with them. And they go out and they say, hey, this wasn't a great day at the office and we're upset about this thing. We're upset about this post. And at the same time, we're upset about our sister site Having their editor fired, uh, right? So at Deadspin, one of the things that happened was exactly this: uh, that they had this post up, and the editor said, "Hey, we are going to, um, uh, we are not going to stick to sports," which apparently was the edict from Go. And Go said, "Okay, we're removing your post, and we're firing you uh, as the editor." And Deadspin looked at this as a major problem. The editor went out on Twitter, said, "Hey, I'm fired," uh, and this. I think caused some of the consternation and some of the thought process as to this was happening at Kotaku which is also owned by the same site as Deadspin but that isn't the case and in some respects firing the editor as the ownership when they don't do what you want for your site is the proper course of action rather than kind of going in and changing the editorial content of your site. And that's the conversation that I had with Mike Futter on Twitter uh, that I'm going to highlight for you here, because I think it's interesting. And as a corporate guy who's not involved in journalism, who doesn't have eyes on the CBA here, who doesn't know the full details of what this should look like uh, in a properly running journalistic enterprise, ask Mike, because he's been involved in these things for a long time. So he had a tweet that said, the editorial firewall is crucial for the operation of a media outlet. What you're seeing at Geo is management breaching that firewall in a way that will permanently scar the ownership of these sites. This is going to be an ugly brawl. And I responded, I said, hey, I'm very interested in this and agree that ownership doesn't appear to be handling it the right way. That said, in your view, do they have any right to set the direction for the outlet? If the Deadspin editors decided they just wanted to cover European Union pastries, could ownership object? And he responded, and I thought this was interesting, he said, they can set editorial direction by firing editorial leadership and hiring someone else. Now, if you think about that, that's very similar to what we've talked about in board of directors and officer relationships, what we would call agency and fiduciary duty. That essentially, if your ownership, you have this collectively bargained kind of concept with a journalistic outlet, the thing that you can do is say, okay, we want you to stick to sports. If you don't, if you write this post, we can't breach that firewall. We can't change what you have written, which is an unusual circumstance. Generally companies outside of a kind of journalistic ethics thought process can do that. They are the publisher. They don't have to publish something that they don't want to but there are lines to be drawn with contracts and agreements that they have made and obligations that they have and there certainly is usefulness to having a firewall between marketing and editorial and between ownership and journalists and things of that nature and mike says yeah absolutely you can say you can say to the deadspin guys stick to sports or in this case don't do pastry as i say in my hypothetical Uh, and if they don't do that if they have something that is deliberately kind of attacking the ownership group, which has been the case at these former Gawker sites, this GeoMedia sites uh, group, Uh, if you are attacking ownership, ownership doesn't like that, they can fire you. They can't change what you wrote. They probably can't change that it's on their site necessarily, but they can say that's not the content that we want on this site and we are firing you. And, And so I said, I backed that up. I said, okay, so... It's an agency relationship editors do pastries you fire the editor in the interview with the next editor you say we expect you to cover tennis that editor covers tennis and when they move to pastries two years later you fire that editor again and repeat but never with the kind of we expect conversation happening after firing or with trying to change what is the content of their message directly certainly not with these moves that take the posts down specifically and, and Mike basically confirmed that. He actually says, I think if you're the guy coming in next, you probably don't have the stones to be pastry guy version two. That once you are setting the standard for, hey, we want to only be about sports at Deadspin, we fire the guy that isn't going to stick to sports, that the next guy we interview, we say, hey, we really want to stick to sports here that that guy's going to stick to sports, or he's not going to take the job in all honesty. However, people do change over the course of years, and it's always interesting for me to kind of highlight these attenuated agency relationships because they are all around us. And it makes sense why people get confused about how they even exist because from a corporate standpoint, you look at something like Deadspin, you say, okay, if you own the thing, if you're paying the paychecks, if you are running and paying for the server space, whatever else costs go into actually running one of these sites, you probably should have control over what appears on them. And that's true to some extent, but you've contracted away that right in order to have an editorial firewall that you actually think at the end of the day is valuable for people that are coming to that site to know that these journalists feel the way they do, that the editors are actually in control of their editorial content. And because of the usefulness of that firewall, you were okay with contracting away it. And now you are trying to step back and do something differently. And that's not the right way to go about it. I'm a corporate lawyer, I can see both sides of this coin. Uh, but this isn't the right way to handle it if you're ownership you have to get around these kind of editorial issues and yes you can fire people if you want to and that's why the kotaku story that kotaku isn't dead right now while completely accurate doesn't mean it will be accurate next week right if steven totillo or someone else involved at kotaku continues to make articles that don't uh, that the ownership doesn't approve of whether that's because they are overly political or they are about pastries or whatever or that they attack ownership directly Ownership does have the authority to fire people within the confines of the CBA. So if that's going to happen like it did at Deadspin, it likely is going to happen in the same manner as it does at Kotaku. People are different. Mr. Totello might react differently than Deadspin's editor and they might have a different conversation. And certainly it looks bad if Geo just goes down the line and fires all of its head editors. But that could happen in the future. The point is it hasn't happened today. And over-reading into these tweets and kind of having these tweets and social media kind of reflect upon each other, wind up with Twitter threads, wind up with Reddit threads, is not something that I like to see. Go read the source material. Go look at the article that actually talks about these things. Because if you read it yesterday before it was pulled down, you would have seen that it had nothing to do with the actual tweets. They were assuming that somebody saying they had a bad day at work meant that they were fired. And that's an assumption that you just can't make as a journalistic outlet. So that's kind of concept number one of what happened yesterday. Kotaku is dead. No, it's not. And don't repeat it because that's not the way it is right now. And I, If I had the GameSpace article up to show you and it wasn't pulled down, I would have linked it in the description of the video, but I also would have said, don't necessarily click on it. This isn't good journalism. This isn't something that you should necessarily click on. It's what we would generally think of as clickbait. It's not well-researched. It's not well-thought, but it is kind of the kind of thing that gets these rumors, this innuendo, uh, all of this gossip on the internet and can really affect people's lives. So do, do take care with that kind of thing. And in the same vein, we had a second story yesterday that I wanted to talk to you about. And that was about something near and dear to my heart, which is NCAA football. So I had a lot, a lot of tweets and things that came across my timeline, some of which were DM to me that said, hey, NCAA football, the video game is back. It's back because the NCAA has taken some steps and the NCAA is going to allow players to use their likeness rights that they can sell them, that they can contract out in a union, whatever else it might be. Uh, And that's going to allow EA or whomever to make an NCAA football game. And we should get excited. Folks, that's not what the NCAA said yesterday. I'm sorry if this is the first you are hearing of it. I really do apologize for that. But while there is essentially one step taken on the path to potentially getting something like an NCAA football game out into stores and in the market, this is a very tiny step. If you're familiar with how the NCAA operates, they like to operate through committees, subcommittees, take long-term plans, and whittle them down to almost nothing. And this is essentially what happened yesterday. So I want to take a look at what they actually said here. We're going to talk about this to a significant extent. But it says, I said, folks, read the source material. You might remember that language that I used at the top of the Kotaku article as well. The NCAA has not done anything, but is simply kicking the can down the road in a hope to stave off legislation and regulation. See quote and discussion in thread. And, and we're gonna basically do that here on the video, so we don't need to see the rest of that thread, although I will link it uh, in the description to this video. And this is the actual statement that the NCAA made. Now, we're gonna also look at how this was reacted to around the internet, but this is the statement that the NCAA made. It was bold and in clear letters for everyone to see, every journalist to review. And that just simply didn't happen yesterday because people were excited about what it meant. Now, if you're not familiar with what's happening in college football, I will give you the very, very short version, which is there has been a series of legislation proposed in various states, including one that has been signed into law in California that essentially says we are not going to permit... The NCAA to require people to give up their likeness rights, players to give up their likeness rights in order to participate in NCAA events. And the NCAA has come down very strongly against those efforts in California and Florida, and I think in a couple of other places, and has said that's going to blow up the NCAA, and we're just going to excise you from participation in the NCAA. Now, I have a few tweets from a month ago or so that say that's not going to happen. The NCAA is not going to excise all of the California schools from the model, and indeed this is their response to that kind of movement across the country to stave off that legislation and regulation is to have a committee kind of come to a decision at, that they now market as being unanimously approved in a big step yesterday. But let's actually take a look at what they said. In the association's continuing efforts to support college athletes, the NCAA's top governing board voted unanimously to permit students participating in athletics the opportunity To benefit from the use of their name image and likeness okay relatively good so far opportunity isn't exactly get but we'll work with it in a manner consistent with the collegiate model now that's a huge huge phrase i'm a lawyer so i don't blame you for looking at this video or looking at this language and saying hey rick you're parsing that awfully closely does that actually mean anything is that actually limiting what they have said they are going to do and my answer to that is it is limiting it immensely in a manner consistent with the collegiate model is very important to what the NCAA already believes, which is that amateurism is the height of all things. We need to not pay these kids for any number of reasons. And I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of that right now. But what it means for this purpose is that they are going to try to establish these rules in a manner that they think is consistent with the collegiate model. So it becomes very important as to what the NCAA thinks is consistent with the collegiate model. Fortunately, They have spoken on this, not even two months ago. And I've brought up now a CBS article that says, NCAA Prez calls name, image, and likeness rights an existential threat to college sports. With name, image, and likeness rights becoming a boiling point for college sports, NCAA President Mark Emmert said Tuesday that granting athletes such rights would be an existential threat to the collegiate model. I want to read that again. The president of the NCAA said two months ago, That granting athletes any of these rights would be an existential threat to the collegiate model that's his actual quote here he says it's the single biggest issue in his almost decade on the job and then we are expected to believe in a press release that actually highlights that they are going to establish rules that are consistent with the collegiate model that this is supposed to be any kind of large step towards actually giving these likeness rights to players and i don't care how you feel about likeness rights you could be totally opposed to them you could want college football to be the same as it was for the last 50 years or whatever What it does mean is that if you don't get true likeness rights, if you don't get those licensing abilities for your likeness rights, then the NCAA football model, the video game, the Electronic Arts video game, or whoever might be its successor, really can't exist. That's the problem here, is that you had all these issues with whether or not they had the likeness rights, whether or not they could sell them, whether or not the NCAA could profit off of them, and Electronic Arts ultimately decided there was way too much legal exposure connected to all these questions. So you really need to have these likeness rights be afforded to the players in a manner that is significant. That is normal for the rest of humanity outside of NCAA student athlete qualifiers. And by saying in a manner consistent with the collegiate model, and then also saying, hey, we think that generally license rights are an existential threat to the collegiate model. It's very, very difficult to look at this statement as anything other than trying to kick the can down the road, stave off other states from enacting their own regulations and legislation, and try to look for all the world like they are doing something that seems to be desired by a great body of people. Fortunately for them, that's exactly what happened. That's how this thing was reported. If you look at various places on the internet, the reason it was hitting my timeline is not because everybody was parsing this and saying, "Uh-oh, naughty NCAA, you tried to trick us with this language." Nope, that's not what people were saying at all. NCAA football fans freaking out over potential return of beloved video game franchise from the sporting news, with a whole heap and helping of tweets regarding how excited people are about NCAA football coming back. A simple search on Google of the term NCAA football video game yields why EA Sports NCAA football could return after college athlete pay reversal. Tar Heels excited to potentially see themselves in NCAA football video game. Freaking out, the article that we just read. EA Sports open to bringing back NCAA football game. All of this stuff was actually reported and gone over again and again and again by journalists who are bouncing off these stories from each other. At major outlets, you see here Sports Illustrated, Fox Business, other places, Sporting News, that these good, attentive, detail-oriented journalists wound up essentially bouncing a story between themselves that said, hey, NCAA football is coming back, regardless of the fact that that's not at all what the NCAA actually wound up saying about where their rule process is at. So we also want to look at exactly the the loopholes that they can drive their trucks through here. They say that we are going to establish guidelines. And if we look at the bottom here, they say we're going to establish guidelines no later than January 2021, which is a fair distance away from now, and that we will continue to be gathering feedback about this entire process through April. This is the way the NCAA operates. I'm not really criticizing them on this, but they go slowly. Right. So they say, all right, here's an announcement in October of 2019. We're going to ask for working group feedback through April, so we got a uh, six months or so to get that feedback, and then at that point we've got another year or so to draft up some rules. So we're still many, many steps away. And what are those rules going to look like? Well, they have to assure that student athletes are treated similarly to non-student uh, to non-athlete students. Okay, that's tricky. Maintain the priorities of education and the collegiate experience. Not sure what that means at all facilitate fair and balanced competition, which is gonna dovetail to the last point here, which is protect the recruiting environment and prohibit inducements to select or transfer to a specific institution. Those are difficult, right? We see this in pro sports all the time. You have a higher licensing capability when you're in Los Angeles or New York City than you do when you are necessarily in some place like Ann Arbor or potentially Iowa or any other place where you don't necessarily have that large media market. It's very difficult to imagine how they would possibly have a rule that could protect the recruiting environment with that kind of scenario. Then you have the kind of even more wishy-washy language. Make clear the distinction between collegiate and professional opportunities. Kind of difficult to see how that'll work if your likeness rights are being sold at a specific value primarily because you're the quarterback of a top five ranked football team. And then you have to make clear that compensation for athletics performance or participation is impermissible. Performance may be not that hard. You don't necessarily have to be able to have a license that says, if I score three touchdowns, I'm going to get X amount of dollars. Participation is a difficult one, though, right? If you're getting a license opportunity because you are the quarterback of that team, and then isn't that the reason that you have that license, can the NCAA say that's not allowed because it's clear that that's the reason? It's very, very difficult to see exactly how this will work. And the NCAA doesn't have any idea, right? These are bullet points. These are affirmations. These are aspirational goals as to what they hope the rules might look like someday. They are not rules. And rules that actually meet these bullet points would probably be 50 pages long. If you've seen the NCAA rulebook, you know I'm not exaggerating on this point. So what you've got is a situation where the NCAA basically did the first baby step of saying, hey, we might be able to look at something like this in a committee after the working group has gotten its feedback within a year and a half from now. Uh, but, you know, we hope that it'll be something. So please don't write any more laws against us. But the internet responded, reacted, and said, NCAA football is on the horizon. And I said, okay. I need to make a thread about that. I did make a thread about that. And I said, if this was a client interaction, if this was a negotiation of a contract that I was engaging in for a client and the opposing party had a history like the NCAAs and actually used the phrase consistent with the collegiate model as the give for what they were obligating themselves to do for me, I would advise my client to walk away entirely. This is the kind of thing you analyze when you are discussing items uh, between different parties is you say, okay, what have you previously said in the past? If you want that proviso, if you want that carve out, to what your obligation is going to be. I need to look carefully at what you mean by that carve-out. And every indication that the NCAA has given so far is that they mean that what you are thinking of, that we are giving you, is an existential threat to the model. So we're probably not going to do that. We're probably going to do something much, much less. So be happy about this, but it's going to be consistent with the collegiate model as we see it. And I would tell my client to walk away. You don't need to deal with somebody that's trying to make carve-outs that uh, completely obliterate whatever obligation uh, they might have to you. And ultimately, at the end of the day, over the course of a long period of time, yesterday and today, you start to see some of that filter out across the internet. I've got a tweet here from Darren Ravel that says, before today, EA had explored doing a college video game again, but couldn't get far because no lawyer would sign off on it being worth the financial exposure. Today, we are a step closer. That's legitimate. We are. But we are still, I'm afraid, a long way away. And that's the right way to look at this story. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with looking at a story and saying, hey, that's an important thing, but it's not the be all and end all thing. It's not the end of the story and we're not there yet. And again, I turn back at the end of this video to Mike Futter, who actually wound up retweeting this thread that I did on this. He says, before you go celebrating a new NCAA football or basketball game, you should probably read this thread. The news being reported is not quite what you may think it is, which, having watched this video, you now know. But I talked with Mike a little bit about it. He expressed his wishful thinking on the part of either the journalists or the, or the people on Reddit or wherever who really want this game and want to read things in the way that is maximally uh, gratifying for them. And I said, yeah, it's very interesting because a lot of big-time reporters are doing this too, and I don't usually see that. And he said what I thought was a very important point here. He said, you're seeing re-reporting's dark side in real time. People don't often stop and check the source material when they should and instead just assume that the person before them got it right. And I think that's right. I think it's perfectly fine to talk about these things with things that are at least as low level as something like Kotaku dying or the NCAA football game coming back. But you also see this in other news stories. You saw this when the Mueller report stuff was happening. You saw this in the trials and hearings of Judge Kavanaugh. You see it all across the political spectrum, whether that's in the Democratic debates or whether that's whatever President Trump winds up saying. All of these things wind up happening in real time now. And so it's always a good idea to try to dig and dig and dig and find out exactly what was said, who said it, and when, because this editorializing is useful. I think there are a lot of people you can follow. I think there are a lot of smart people out there. I think there are a lot of good journalists out there. But it's very easy to get caught in a trap when you want to be first out of the gate, to get that story up as soon as possible. NCAA football could come back. The NCAA says they're going to pay athletes. It's not what they said yesterday. And so it's always useful to go in, look at that document, and judge it for yourself. Because at the end of the day, that's all any of us can do. And find some people that you trust. I trust Mike. I think he does a great job reporting on the business and law of video games uh, at Game Daily Biz. Uh, But find some people that you trust. Even they, like all human beings, will get things wrong from time to time, just like I get things wrong from time to time. But ultimately, if you're looking at the primary source material as much as you possibly can, you won't fall into the same traps that some of these people on my social media links and DMs did yesterday. And that's really all we can ask of each other. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this video, please like, please subscribe. We are talking about these things all the time, including pop culture, entertainment, software, technology, video games, and everything else from the prism of business and law. I'm a contract attorney that talks about businesses, talks about getting them set up, formed, and funded all the time. And that's the context in which I view these uh, news stories. So please do check it out. Please share it around if uh, anybody you know would be interested in it.